Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. CapEx, we love an unfashionable cause. And in a cost of living crisis, few demographics are less popular than those who seem to be struggling a bit less. But CapEx is also a fan of basic economic concepts. And with the tax burn the highest it's been since the era of state socialism under Attlee, the Laffer curve inevitably springs to mind. Because while calls to tax the rich may be popular, if it means less money for public services, it will ultimately prove counterproductive. This is not just about revenue to the exchequer. The only way we'll get out of the hole we're in is by growing the economy. And that means enabling businesses to thrive, to generate profits, and in the end, to make some people wealthy. And I'm hoping this fantastic panel I've assembled here will also address some of the deeper cultural questions too, about what our attitudes to the rich says about the society we live in. With rampant inflation and tax thresholds frozen for four years, dragging more and more people into higher tax bans, does rich people include people like head teachers and junior doctors, the people who are engaged in industrial action, asking for higher pay? And ultimately, do we think inequality is a danger to society or a necessary condition for the aspiration we need to grow and to innovate? And to discuss this, I'm delighted to be joined by a really excellent panel with real, real expertise in this subject. We have broadcaster and commentator Emily Carver, Martin van der Veer, the business editor of The Spectator. Entrepreneur Luke Johnson, who's founder and partner at Risk Capital Partners, chairman of, among other businesses, Gales Bakery, and Mara Somerset Webb, senior columnist at Bloomberg. Each panelist is going to talk for a few minutes and then we will take questions. So if you're watching and you want to pop a question in the Q&A at any point, please do. And I'm hoping this is going to be a really fascinating discussion. So, Emily, do you want to kick us off? I must say first that my first ever opinion article was titled In Defense of Billionaires. Uh, so I very much have previous for uh, defending the rich, which isn't a very fashionable thing to do, as you say, Alice, but there you go. But that was a reaction to Jeremy Corbyn's rhetoric, actually, at the time. Yes, of course, it's difficult to defend the rich when we have high inflation, high housing costs, high energy bills, public sector workers out striking. And also work doesn't always pay as much as it should for a lot of people. Would just say that just to begin. But I think it's very interesting in this country, general attitudes towards the rich. We seem to have, this is based on polling data that I've seen and deep research into the area. Our attitudes towards the rich are quite different from other areas of the world. And I think that's very interesting. We have a far more negative perception of the rich and the wealthy 
And I would argue that that is actually a negative thing for society. If you look at the statistics, this is research that Dr. Rainer Zittelman did. He's an historian and sociologist, and he looked at research of attitudes across the world. And only 19% of Brits think it's important to be rich. Now, you could say that's nice. We have other priorities. We're less materialistic than other nations. But when you compare that to the average in some Asian countries, where 58% of people think it's important to be rich, you may start to see a bit of a problem there because you also find this goes hand in hand with things like social envy and also perception of the rich. We tend to associate negative terms with rich and wealthy and other words like that, whereas in many burgeoning economies around the world, they see it in much more positive light, hardworking, ambitious, et cetera, et cetera. Those are the types of words that they associate with being rich and wealthy. And I would argue that this may well be having a bit of a negative impact on entrepreneurialism, on the dynamic economy, on perceptions of our country as a place to start and grow a business, which, as you mentioned in your introduction, can have a negative effect on our public services as well, if you're not getting in all of that tax income. We've seen over the past few years and for a long time what happens when governments get incentives wrong. There's been quite a lot made of the fact that we're seeing a net outflow of millionaires. I don't think that's a good thing. The left seem to think that the pursuit of equality should come first and foremost. But I would take the view growing an economy where everyone manages to get a bigger slice would be far more preferable. We've got ever-changing tax rates, which seem to be punitive, which is very difficult, not just income taxes, which are all over the place, but also inheritance taxes, stamp duty, can stop people from downsizing, which isn't good for society, capital gains tax, et cetera, et cetera. I do think it's difficult, though, for governments to balance the need to be seen to be on the side of ordinary workers and the desire to be on the side of ordinary workers and small businesses and not to scare away too many high net worth individuals. Because one of the things I'm concerned about, and one of the trends I've been seeing recently, particularly with young people of my age, I'm 30, my age, a little bit older, a little bit younger, lots of the most entrepreneurial minded young people seem to be looking to not Europe really, but places like Dubai, Australia, Singapore, America to an extent, looking for places where they feel like they can get on, keep more of their money, and where entrepreneurialism and ambition are potentially valued. So one more thing, just an insight from being on the telly, people's attitudes towards being rich differ depending on what you're talking about exactly. So for example, there doesn't seem to be an issue with individuals getting rich, but there is a big issue with corporates being seen to earn too much or not pay enough taxes, et cetera, et cetera. So obviously that's a more small C conservative audience. But there is a difference in how people perceive what is deserving and what is not. So I'll finish there. What I would say is that I think Britain needs to have a, a more positive outlook on being rich, I would say. Martin, you've recently published a book called The Good, The Bad and The Greedy. And in that, you're quite critical of a kind of loads of money culture that followed the Big Bang in the city. I wonder if you have a slightly different view. Should we have a more positive view of the rich or, or is there more to it? If you remember the premise of that book, the introduction of that book was an analysis of how culturally Britain is sort of biased against 
not so much the rich, but against wealth creation from the 19th century onwards for a whole set of reasons. There was a snobbery about trade. There was then a long era of you know heavy state intervention and the beginning of the welfare state and so on, in which entrepreneurs were categorized as spivs. They were like sort of World War II black marketeers. They weren't admired people at all. All sort of wealth creation in the UK is up against a long-standing two centuries of sort of cultural bias against it. I myself, and thank you for mentioning the book, would certainly make a distinction between the sort of deserving and the undeserving rich. So the title of this this session is in defense of the rich. I'm very happy to defend honestly self-made fortunes. I'll defend fortunes that are well spent in the sense of active philanthropy, as well as enjoying the fruits of your fortune. And I would even defend inherited wealth if it was honestly made, you know, first time round. And if the inheritors uh, lead their lives in the sort of traditional way of English landowners and, and good, you know, leading citizens of their communities who happen to be wealthy. I can defend lots of aspects of being rich. What I don't defend and what I've attacked for 30 years in print is the sort of overpaid banker engaged in what my old uh, school friend Adair Turner called sort of socially useless activities, you know, fortunes made speculatively, which have destabilized markets and, you know, staple food commodities and so on, that kind of thing, and have caused banking crashes. I do not defend that at all. I wouldn't defend oligarchs uh, who essentially stole their fortunes and so on. Let us in this discussion distinguish the deserving from the undeserving if we can. Luke, you're an entrepreneur. You're, I hope, what Martin would describe as a self-made, a deserving rich. Perhaps we can have your perspective on, on how this country treats people who are wealth creators. Yes, I think too many of those on the left have pursued the politics of envy and believe that economics is a zero-sum game. And this is such a profound misunderstanding of how the world actually works that once you assume that, then nothing else begins to make sense. The fact is that throughout history, it's been shown that aggressively redistributing wealth and attacking the private sector always fails, always leads to an exit of investment and talent, living standards collapse, and misery ensues. Everyone loses. And, you know, Venezuela is a classic case that socialism is a disaster. The fact is, free enterprise, markets, choice, competition, initiative of risk-taking entrepreneurship is the reason why you get wealth. You know, there is an enormous churn of those who are rich in society, and it is only through the wealth creators you generate tax and exports and jobs and innovation. And without all those things, you know, essentially we'd be Cuba or North Korea. I don't think that's what people want. And, you know, you can focus as much as you like on those who you know, have more money than you. But the fact of the matter is the top 1% to pay 29% of all income tax. If you drive away the high earners and the builders of businesses and so forth, we simply won't be able to pay the bills for the NHS and our pensions and everything else. And in any society throughout history, inequality is inevitable and natural. And a sort of ludicrous perfectionism of egalitarianism doesn't exist. Our extensive welfare state is only supported because some people like, you know, 
Dyson and Branson, Ratcliffe and many others go out and have skin in the game, take risks, you know, do very well. And incentives matter. Incentives drive everything. And skin in the game drives everything. And the alternative to wealth creators and the rich is the government spending all our money. And you only have to look at the vast squandering of recent years on things like COVID and HS2 and so many other actions of the government. It's better to leave as much money as possible in individuals' hands and let them spend it as they see fit, and it will deliver better outcomes. Marion, you're a columnist at Bloomberg. You've got a close eye on the markets. And of course, the markets is where a lot of the kind of speculation that Martin was talking about happened. But they're also where people's savings are, they're where people's pensions are. How do you think a lot of the kind of perhaps backlash against the wealthy we've seen in policy terms recently has affected the markets and how that's affecting the economy as a whole? Yeah, quite a lot, actually. And can I just pick up on a couple of the things that other people have said, because there's so many interesting bits and bobs in there before I come on to that. The first thing I wanted to say is that, you know, there's even a course at Cambridge, or there was, called Business Literature and Society, that fully focused on the history of making business look filthy in literature. And there's always been this division between, you know, good people who are kind of rich already or poor and good, but they certainly don't make money. And the filthy, filthy people who go out you know, from Dickens the whole way through, you can trace it on through every popular author. It is practically impossible to find anywhere in British literature a good businessman. It's always, always something slightly grubby about it. And you can see it in, in UK film as well. So we have this history of denigrating wealth creation, which is sort of rather bizarre, really. So that's the first thing, that this history is, is fascinating. Many papers written on it. The second is this question of, of who is rich in the UK and the deserving and the undeserving rich. And we had, I think, the most fascinating example of how in the UK we divide the world up into deserving rich and the undeserving rich when we changed the inheritance tax rules for NHS consultants. So we had to change the LTA. In fact, we did away with it completely when it wasn't, by the way, a bad rule. It's the annual allowance inside the pension system is so shockingly awful. The LTA really wasn't that bad. But we got rid of it because we have deserving rich people, because doctors are deserving rich people. And then, of course, the papers were jammed full of information about how other dirty, filthy rich people would exploit this wonderful loophole that was created for the good rich people. And this was absolutely fascinating. We, we as a country, immediately went, doctors, they're poor, but rich. And uh, we don't know quite what, but either way, they can do whatever they want because they're deserving and everyone else not so. And I wonder if a lot of what happens with our approach to the rich is because the people who are rich don't realize they are rich. So a lot of the civil service, for example, and anyone who works in government is by most people's definition, off the scale rich. Because if you have an RPI linked defined benefit pension to be paid from the day of your retirement through to your death, and then possibly left to your spouse, you've already got two and a half million quid in the bank. So you're already rich. And I think a lot of the problem comes from the policies on this kind of thing being made by people who do not understand the extent of their own wealth relative to that of the non-public servant people they are dealing with. That was two points I wanted to make. The third, briefly, was that uh, you said earlier that if you're nice to the rich, are you not on the side of ordinary workers? But it is only by being phenomenally nice to the rich that we can even begin to be on the side of ordinary workers. I don't know the numbers in England. I live in Scotland. But in Scotland, it's I think it's 0.6 or 0.5% of the taxpayers pay nearly 18% of income tax. 
Now, Scotland is a very small country. 0.6% of people is not very many people. You don't need to scare very many people out of the country to ruin everything. And by the way, research shows, or I wrote that in Bloomberg a few weeks ago, the evidence shows that it takes about two percentage points of income tax, two percentage points to persuade someone to move from one state in America to another state in America. And it wouldn't take much more than that in the UK. More, of course, to get you to move across a national border, but not so much to get you to move inside your country. On to what you asked me, which is how does this affect markets? Well, there is something very big going on in the UK stock market at the moment, and everyone will have read about it. Companies being taken private and companies in particular deciding to list in the US instead of listing in the UK. Now, if you ask those companies and if you ask people working in the market why they are doing that, the answer very often comes down to money. And they'll tell you it's because they can get a higher valuation for their company in the US, which is true. And that's related to various differences between the US market and the UK market, and possibly to a degree, some of the uncertainty around Brexit, et cetera, and our bizarre political experience where we keep changing prime ministers. But the other part of it is that if you list your company in the US, where everyone loves rich people and everyone loves entrepreneurs and wealth is rewarded and respected and wealth creation in particular is respected, your CEO's salary will be at least double, maybe significantly more than it will be in the UK. I've heard several people telling me recently that it's hard to get good directors in the UK. It's hard to get good CEOs in the UK, hard to get people who really understand international markets because they can earn so much more somewhere else where people aren't constantly going to be throwing bricks at them for uh, earning more than somebody randomly thinks is appropriate. So this is a really big deal because when we do things like this culturally that affect the breadth and the depth of our publicly listed markets, we begin to really take aim at the shareholder capitalism that has been such a big driver of the UK's wealth for the last hundred years. We start to do very dangerous things, not just about our, our tax take and that kind of thing, but about the fundamentals of our economy. That's been really fascinating. There's lots to pick up on there. I guess what I'm interested in is part of what we've been drawing threads through kind of a cultural attitudes to the rich. Now, Martin and Marion, you seem to suggest that Britain has always had a slight suspicion of wealth creators, but it does feel like in policy terms, at least, that attitudes have swerved in kind of a schizophrenic way towards the rich. So we've got very high tax burn, we've got very punitive personal taxes, high corporation tax. But then at the same time, we have Keir Starmer saying he's not going to do anything about the top rate of tax, but he is going to tax things that rich people like, like capital gains and private school fees. And then we've had the Liz Truss experiment with abolishing the 45p rate, which obviously uh, went down very badly. I just wonder if the panel can reflect a bit on how we think that attitudes have changed recently towards the rich, or is this just a kind of an ongoing progression of a cultural distrust of wealth creators? I think attitudes only change noticeably for the better, i.e. in favour of enterprise and wealth creation in the 80s. I mean, there was a very different tone to the 80s from the 60s and 70s. And since then, it's been a very mixed picture. It is true that some self-made millionaires are admired, but not many, really. I mean, you know, Richard Branson, a rather glamorous figure, great at marketing himself and his brand, is probably quite widely admired by younger people. But Jim Ratcliffe, who's built one of the most substantial industrial businesses in Europe, almost single-handedly, is absolutely sort of derided, particularly from the left. So I think the pendulum did swing in the Thatcher era because 
it did seem that, you know, rising tide lifted all boats. You could physically see a change and sense a change in atmosphere in Britain, but it hasn't sustained itself because underlying it was this deep cultural prejudice, which Marin amplified what I first said. But I always think of Coronation Street as a fine example. The only factory, the only productive economic unit ever in Coronation Street is the knicker factory called Underworld. <laughs> <laughs> run by an absolute spiv called Mike Baldwin. And that sort of encapsulated British attitudes to entrepreneurship and manufacturing. Anyway, so there we are. Things began to improve in the Thatcher era, but it wasn't sustained. That's his roots, I guess, in the Industrial Revolution, when wealth creation really was dirty and unkind. This is where it comes from. Vast fortunes made in a period that really was pretty horrid for workers and built vast fortunes on the back of, you know, hideous pollution, etc. I mean, this is where the whole idea in the UK that wealth creation is dirty comes from. And it's, a, you know, it's one of our, our many first mover disadvantages, if I think that that cultural legacy continues. No, but you're quite right. And the cotton mills were terrible. And there were other examples, sort of Birmingham, Cadbury's and so on, of enlightened industrialization and philanthropy rapidly advancing with industrialization. But it's true, the early industrial revolution was very bad for the workers. Yeah, I think it's quite interesting. There is a significant number of people in this country who genuinely seem to think that rich people don't pay tax. They think that they don't. They think that there are all these evasion avoidance schemes, which means that if you're really wealthy, you don't pay tax. And that flies in the face of the statistics that have already been mentioned on income tax and then you're taxed on everything else. And it's very populist. The majority of people don't think rich people pay enough tax. Keir Starmer, well, Jeremy Corbyn did this so much more, but Keir Starmer is doing the very same. He's pretending to the electorate at the moment that if he were to scrap non-DOM status and if he were to put another windfall tax on BP and Shell and others, that there would be enough money to redistribute to make all of our lives so much better. It's so dishonest, but it's clearly, with all the history that we've just been talking about, it's clearly what a lot of the British public want to hear, that as long as the rich aren't rich, or at least if they don't get any richer, it's fine if actually there's no real-life benefit to any of our lives. I guess it's a natural instinct in some ways. Perhaps we need to re-educate ourselves on this, but it's a natural instinct to be jealous, to be envious, to question why has that person got more than me. And it's very stark at the moment because, of course, most public sector workers will never be millionaires. There's no prospect of them being millionaires, particularly in this current climate where assets are so expensive. Um, so I can understand why there's that feeling of, you know, why have they got so much and I haven't? But there needs to be just a general understanding that wealth creation does benefit us all. And that, yes, you can say no non-DOM status or you can say people from abroad can't buy homes in this country. That's not actually going to make anyone's life better. I want to pick up on this question of public sector workers and who counts as rich. But Luke, I want to hear from you as someone who's literally at the coalface of how it feels to be an entrepreneur, if you get a sense of this cultural aversion that we've been speaking about, and also the policy climate, whether you think it is helpful to people who run businesses or inimical. Unfortunately, I think Britain is dominated by an intellectual elite who are in the arts and in the media, politics and so forth, who uh, lean left heavily. 
the BBC being a classic example, you know, most of them directly or indirectly feed at the public sector trough. What they forget is that 85% of people work in the private sector and they all work for businesses that were once started by an entrepreneur. And that, you know, if those entrepreneurs, the founders, didn't think they were going to get rich, I'm afraid to say most of them probably wouldn't have started the businesses or kept going. We have this survivorship bias view that all entrepreneurs end up rich. Of course, the large majority don't. They fail. There is a heavy price to pay, generally speaking, of striving for years, and only some make it. If we demonize the rich, Emily, I think, said the myths of the left, that the rich are somehow evading, avoiding tax, and that if we just tax them more, then there are hundreds of billions to be had. What will happen is they will leave. They will invest elsewhere. They will emigrate. This has happened before in previous eras, and it's tragic in a way that each generation has to learn that if you alienate the wealth generators, everyone is poorer. There are fewer jobs. There is less tax to be paid. There's a fewer exports. There's much less innovation. Unfortunately, I think too many people are wholly ignorant of how the world of business and economics actually works. They have no understanding, particularly on the left, of how you stimulate investment and job creation and entrepreneurship. And the risk is if you hand over the government to them, they overregulate, they overtax. And by the time, because of the lag effects, you know, people wake up to the damage caused, it's too late. I think it's the question that's kind of at the moral centre of capitalism. Is there something necessarily bad about the profit motive? No, clearly not. And, you know, profit, as it were, makes the world go round. But I think we're not trying to reanalyze the whole principle of capitalism here. We're trying to spotlight what it is about the rich or which rich are so despised generally in British culture and by the mass of the population. And I think where in my book, part of the analysis was where it had gone wrong was not so much in capital generation, the the making of fortunes by entrepreneurs, which is, let's be fair, quite well admired by most sensible people, but it's in the remuneration scales of executives who have not put their capital at risk. And that's very typically in the city of London, but it's also in lots of other examples. So when you have the multiple between average workers' pay in a company and chief executive pay going from 20, which was the same as the Soviets in the 70s, to 50 at the turn of the century, to 150 now, or 350 in the United States. The resentment against highly, highly paid executives who are not fired often enough for underperforming is a very strong force. So I think if you quizzed a lot of people in this country, who do they really you know, hey, they would probably say it's the bankers who they think are paid, and they probably are paid five million. But Mr, you know, the head of BP, Mr. Looney, his company has made an enormous profit because of wholesale oil and gas prices, but he himself will collect 10 million pounds this year. Is that deserved riches? One might say, no, it isn't. His capital was never at risk. So I just want to introduce that distinction between the overpaid executive and the rewarded, successful entrepreneur. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, It's a a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. 
That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Marin, did you want to comment on that? Because you were talking about, you know, obviously businesses are in a global competition for talent and mm. remuneration. And you were saying that it's difficult to get the right executives in this country. Well, so I'm told, yes. And I mean, I, I agree with Martin, actually, that you know, there is a problem. There's a very big problem with the CEOs of companies, companies which they did not start, uh, which they've had no creative or innovative input into, which then come to manage later, being able to transform the fortunes of their families for some generations to come on the back of five years work, which is not, by the way, to say that it's remotely easy to manage these vast organizations. It's not. It takes a very particular skill set. And we can see that because we haven't managed to hire anybody with that skill set to run the NHS. You know, maybe we could ask Bernard Looney to do that. And if he could do it successfully, I would personally pay him 10 million pounds. This is not easy. People need to be compensated for this kind of thing. But one of the things that I feel strongly about is that one of the reasons that the general population feel disinclined to approve of the behavior of big corporates and of the people at the top of big corporates is because they feel they have a lack of agency over their behavior. So we have big companies doing stuff all around the world and no one can really control what they do. And that, I think, is a problem of shareholder democracy, which is one of my pet topics. And this was one of the things that Mrs. Thatcher was trying to do. And one of her big ideas was to bring shareholder democracy and therefore the idea that you could participate in the corporate world without already being rich, without actually being an employee of a big corporate. You know, that was why she went ahead with the privatizations, why we had the whole you know, Tell Sid campaign. Everyone was persuaded to buy shares and, and hold of them, et cetera. But it didn't quite work because people didn't get wide enough portfolios. They didn't hang on to them. So people didn't feel fully engaged in the corporate world. And what we have today is a completely different situation where pretty much everybody in work in the UK is part of the corporate world. Everyone has an auto-enrollment pension if they're earning over a certain amount and they're over a certain age. And that means that everybody holds equities, which means that in theory, at least, they have a stake in the futures of the corporates that they think they hate. And what we've got is a massive education gap going back to um, everyone paying taxes. You know, all these very highly paid bankers, they pay their taxes PAYE. There's no way out of that. They pay their taxes just like every other employee. And of course, we have a wealth of wealth taxes across the UK. So capital gains tax is a huge wealth tax because it's not indexed. So you're paying your tax on nominal, not real gains. That's a wealth tax, huge and untalked about. 
Stamp duty is a massive wealth tax in the UK, and I'm not just talking about stamp duty on houses. Obviously, we have a transactional stamp duty in the equity market. Every time you trade, you pay tax. That's a huge wealth tax. They don't have it in other countries, by the way. That's special to us. And then we have IHT, which is also wealth tax. So we often hear from politicians, particularly on the left, there's no wealth tax in the UK. We need a wealth tax. Well, actually, we have very high wealth taxes here. So that's a big educational gap. And so is this idea that people have no ability to participate in the corporate world and no agency over the corporate world. Now, that, interestingly, is beginning to change in that lots of the um, BlackRock in particular is talking about how it can be that you can deliver some of the power of equity ownership to ordinary people so that we can use the votes that come with the shares that we hold through our auto-enrollment pensions, et cetera. So it may be that in 10 years, we don't have to have these conversations because everybody understands that they're part of the corporate world and therefore they don't have to hate the corporate world because if it goes well, everyone's a winner. That I'm afraid is a way off. Yes, I'm interested to come back to this question of who counts as wealthy. And I think it, it speaks to what you were saying about the education gaps. Many people who are wealthy don't seem to think they are or to feel wealthy. I mean, I mean, tax system would tell you that if you earn over, what is it, £120,000, you're rich. But many people earning that wouldn't feel, especially if they live in London, especially well off, especially if they have, for example, childcare that they need to pay for where they lose the government subsidy, if they have pensions they need to save into, and they're simply not allowed to do so. I wonder if there is sort of any policy adjustments we could make that might help that education gap, that might help people realize what it means to be rich and the responsibilities that might come with that. I don't know if anyone wants to come in on that. America is a great deal richer than Britain, and it's been pulling away from Britain in recent years. The reason is they don't demonize the rich and they encourage investment and they encourage talent. America gets more clever people going over there to work, many of whom are immigrants, some of whom become incredibly successful. It's that magnet for brains and money that helps make America so successful. And they have a culture of celebrating achievement rather than being resentful and wanting to grow the welfare state ever more. You know, if you have a country like we do, where net over half the country doesn't contribute to the system, it creates a very serious long-term problem. I mean, do we think that the kind of tax and welfare system is fair? Does it incentivize wealth creation? I think, and perhaps it's difficult for me to say at my stage in my life, but I think there is a growing resentment at the moment between coming from people who have done the right thing. They don't consider themselves rich. Maybe they're earning £100,000 a year. Maybe their partner's earning 50 or whatever. A resentment that they're being asked to pay more and more and more into a system that they don't believe is working in the way that it should, whether it's the bureaucracy in Whitehall, whether it's the bureaucracy in the NHS, whether it's they don't approve of how the education system is run or rampant crime rates, et cetera, et cetera. I do think that that may be one of the causes of why young families and things are considering places like Dubai, which I wouldn't want to live in, but I can see the attraction, you know, low taxes, safe neighborhoods, et cetera, et cetera. I'm only using Dubai as an example because it seems to be where a lot of uh, young people are going and it's all it seems so attractive because of that. And I think there is a resentment from people that they feel like they're putting so much into the system and getting so little back, particularly when there's, as was just said, there are so many people who are net takers out of the system. So, yes, getting more people into work would probably help with morale for those who are paying more and more and more of their money into the system. So let me try and say something that's perhaps not as sort of 
bracingly right wing, as you might think, <laughs> you know, appropriate to a CapEx webinar, which is to say, why do people in Britain not, by in a large percentage, say it's important to be rich? Because they probably say it's important to be happy. It's important to live at the level you wish to live at with the range of choices you'd like to have. And that there's a quality of life element in Britain, which I just don't think I would find in Dubai, frankly, no. if I moved to Dubai. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? So we shouldn't be too dismissive of the British way of life, which may not actually celebrate billionaires. That's true. It certainly tolerates moderately wealthy who are, as it were, good citizens in their communities. And it certainly provides a high quality of life, but it would provide a higher quality of life. I think I'm coming to your tax point. The key point is how well is our tax money spent? And in this country, we have a very strong sense that it's not well spent. It's wasted, it's spent on the wrong things, public services are breaking down and are inefficient, and that creates a resentment. I would dare also to make a comparison with France. Okay, they're tearing up the paving stones and hurling them at Mr. Macron and torching the police vehicles. You know, they do that, that's their hobby, as it were. But France is a place where public money is very well spent, where wealth is discreetly enjoyed. And I don't get a sense when I'm in France of the same kind of resentment because the state, although it intervenes a lot and taxes a lot, it spends its money very effectively. I've never heard anybody say before that the French state spends its money effectively, Martin. So that's absolutely fascinating. I look forward to receiving proof on that. I always encourage people who are concerned about um, the number of people in the UK who are not net tax contributors to the system to go and look on a website called entitled2.com, in which you can run through and find what tax credits, which are really, of course, cash benefits, et cetera, you can receive based on particular situations. It's often a surprise how generous the UK state is, although we hear a lot about how the UK welfare state is not generous. People are often surprised when they go onto that, put in particular circumstances, and find out how generous it is. And also to find out how it provides the type of incentives that maybe it shouldn't. So for example, the UK tax credit system, is very good at incentivizing people to work part-time. It's not particularly generous to the fully unemployed, but it's very generous to part-time workers. And if we incentivize part-time work over full-time work, it is possible that that adjusts our productivity levels. We have a productivity problem across the world. All countries will say they have productivity problems, but the UK's productivity problem appears to be significantly worse than most other countries. And it may be that part of that is down to some of the disincentives built into our welfare system. One point I wanted to make about wealth in this country is that far too much of it is concentrated into property. Obviously, the value of property has been inflated because of money printing around the world in the last decade or more. From some figures I've seen, we have rather more of our wealth tied up in our homes. A lot of people, therefore, are on paper rich because of where they live. But a lot of that wealth has been generated very much what I would call passively through buying a home years ago that has risen in value greatly. It means that too much of the country's effort and wealth is directed towards their homes rather than industry, which, you know, innovates, creates exports and tax and so forth. We don't tax uh, homes when they're sold. Your principal private residence, only capital gain there is tax free. This can be tens of millions of pounds in exceptional circumstances, which seems to me wrong. In some ways, dare I say, it, if we wanted a more productive and egalitarian society, then a extended property recession in residential house prices 
would be necessary. And it would also help cure the point I think you were really referring to earlier, Alice, which is this vast intergenerational unfairness, very greatly concentrated in homes. We don't build enough homes. That's to do with government regulation. If we built more homes, if property didn't go anywhere in value terms for many years, it would be a very good thing, I suspect. And we need as a nation to obsess less about our homes being stores of value, more about them being places to live. And it would redirect attention towards how do we invest in industry and jobs and innovation. This is the thing with feeling rich. You can be on a very decent, generous salary in the southeast, but when 50% of it's going straight onto housing costs, it can be a bit miserable and you certainly don't feel rich. I just wanted to throw one final element into the discussion. So picking up on what Luke said, it is an unfortunate feature of our economy that so much wealth is held in property. So it's illiquid and people can do less positive things with their surplus wealth, if their surplus wealth is, you know, parkland and woodland, as it were. Let's just bring into this the importance of philanthropy. Uh, Some people would see philanthropy as a duty of the rich. Some people would go further and see it as a sort of atonement on the part of the rich. I just think it's a kind of nice thing to do. And the more it's done, the more good causes, you know, a thousand points of light that people choose personally to support the greater the richness of the social fabric and the quality of life for everyone. So a tax system that advantages philanthropy more than at present and a distribution of assets that gives people the liquidity that they can be philanthropists, I don't think bringing that about by having a sort of decade-long housing uh, freeze or crash, I'm not sure that's the way forward. You'd have a better society if people did more philanthropy and you'd have more admiration or respect for the rich, if that was the case. America has a lot of philanthropy. It also has a lot of very, very deprived, underprivileged people without a network of support. And so I don't hold up America as a better example, but possibly their tax system for facilitating philanthropy is better than ours. Actually brings us perfectly onto David Potter's question, which was precisely, does the government do enough to encourage philanthropy? And I'm interested in the American example, because as I think we've mentioned before, America does have a very different attitude to wealthy people. America views prosperity as part of the promise of the nation. And I wonder if the two are tied together. Do you think rich people would be more philanthropic if people didn't despise them so much? I don't think America is a happier society than Britain is. I think we should recognize that we do have a relatively harmonious society, partly because we don't have the extremes of wealth and unsupported poor that America has. I think what's quite interesting on the philanthropy question, I remember when Jeff Bezos um, said he was donating $100 million to um, a homeless charity, Jeremy Corbyn got straight on and said, wish he'd just pay his taxes instead. And I would argue that actually, and this I asked a big group of high net worth individuals at this panel that I was invited on for some reason. And nearly everyone in the room, when I asked them, you know, would you give more to charity if you were taxed less? All of them put their hands up after some hesitation. So I do think that if people feel like they're already paying beyond their fair share, then you're hardly going to be, you know, also giving to charity, especially when you don't feel your taxes are being spent efficiently. 
you know, I think in my experience of knowing wealthy people, I think philanthropy is much higher on their list of priorities than it ever used to be. And they are getting more creative and they are putting more effort into it. So I think it is happening. It's rather like wealth creation. It isn't something that should be regulated, really. It's about culture. It's about, you know, it being seen as a moral duty to not spoil your children and wreck them through excessive inheritance, but to um, find good causes that deliver for the public good. We're already far too generous to our charity givers. You know, we have a completely out of control charitable sector based entirely on people being able to reclaim gift aid to support what in very often are their personal hobbies. And when I write about this, which I do often because I thoroughly disapprove of gift aid because it's effective hypothecation of taxes, which is very undemocratic and very un-British, by the way. And I look, for example, go away and look up everybody, the number of red squirrel charities in the UK. There's a lot of gift aid going into the red squirrel business. And is that doing the red squirrels any good at all? Well, quite clearly not. Would we prefer that money being used correctly? Well, not correctly, but being used by one of the government priority? I think so. So I have to say that I disagree entirely that we should be more generous to um, philanthropists. Let them give money to their favorite charities. And maybe this is a good charity. Maybe they're bad charities. I don't know. Out of post-tax income. Let it be a genuine gift that in no way disadvantages the state. So actually, I would say no, less. One of the things we haven't talked about is the great everything bubble. The fact that interest rates have been so low for so long that all asset classes have been driven to prices out of proportion to the historical norms. And we've seen no reversion to the mean in the way that we normally would in a normal interest rate environment. And that means that people who held wealth of any kind at the beginning of this period or have bought assets along the way have become much richer than they would in normal times. And I think that this is one of the dynamics behind you know, the hate the rich feel in the UK, that there is a lot of undeserved wealth growth. And that is, you know, that brings us back to house prices. It's definitely been a big dynamic in house prices, which are now more expensive relative to incomes than they have ever been. And if we look at equity markets, not so much in the UK, but around the world, Again, we see this huge rise in asset values and the same in, you know, I don't know, antique watches and uh, classic cars and everything you care to mention. And so we've seen a lot of what you might call undeserved wealth creation. And that, I think, is something that bothers people when they have seen real earned incomes, incomes relative to inflation, fall over the last decade. There's this difference here between falling real incomes and very sharply rising real asset prices. Now, the good news, for what it's worth, is it that is a dynamic that should now begin to reverse? Obviously, we're seeing people beginning to realize that their real wages have fallen dramatically. That is what all these strikes are about. And you can't criticize people striking for having seen their real income fall by 20% over a 10-year period. Of course you can't. So we should, I hope, begin to see a period where real incomes start to rise again. And as interest rates rise, we've already seen what that does to asset prices. So we should be entering, I hope, a normalization period where real incomes rise and real asset prices fall, which should rebalance things a bit. And I hope take some of the heat out of this argument. We've only got a few minutes left, but I have one last audience question, which is from David McKinley, who asks about the lack of business and industrial experience among our policymakers and, and politicians. Do we think it would be an advantage to the nation if more business people, more people with a background in uh, commerce would get into politics? Undoubtedly, because I think that there is a domination by uh, those in politics from people from the sort of backgrounds I suggested before, who never worked in a factory, who've never run a business, who've never had to sell, who've never been in competition with other organisations to earn a living. It means that they don't understand 
the dynamics of business. They don't understand what drives entrepreneurs and what the difference between success and failure in business is. That lack of understanding translates into foolish policy mistakes, which end up making us all poorer or at least not more prosperous. I mean, I think it would be very welcome indeed. There are too many sort of activists and journalists and PR executives. I think I think most people would welcome more people who have more experience of the day-to-day management of a business or even just working in a business. There's so many people who've never worked in the private sector at all at the moment. So why would you know what would benefit the private sector? And why would you even see it as a priority if you've come from a background that has no no business, no private sector at all. So I think that would be absolutely fantastic. I don't know how you encourage them because, you know, if you're a great entrepreneur, you probably won't like the look of an MP salary. So, uh, but just people who've worked in the private sector would be good, just so it's a priority and so that you don't just have this sort of left-wing hate business tripe. Luke, perhaps you could consider standing for Parliament. No, never going to happen. <laughs> oh, well, there you go. It's not because of the money. Yeah, it's because you don't do want someone going through your bins every day of your life looking for dirt to destroy you. Well, yes. Marin, any last words on the calibre of our politicians and whether they need more business experience? Yes, absolutely, they do. Um, it's not just business, it's private sector as a whole. I and mean, there's one wonderful little example of the things that politicians get wrong because they don't understand the private sector. So if you're an MP, for example, your income is constant throughout your career. It barely changes, up with a bit with inflation, bit with inflation here, bit with inflation there. Your uh, pension is guaranteed at the end of it. But the key thing is the stability of income from your first day to your last day. And what that does is it tends to make politicians assume that everybody else's income is also constant. And therefore, people who are high earners are always high earners. And people who are low earners are always low earners. Where in fact, most of us go through many cycles during our careers. Sometimes we pay 20%, sometimes we pay 40%, sometimes we pay 45%, et cetera, et cetera. So we go up and down and up and down and up and down. And many policies are made based on the idea that someone is always a high earner or always a low earner. Whereas in fact, in our economy and the private sector, it's an incredibly fluid thing. It's just not like that. So my policy mistakes, which are as huge as that, are made because a politician who's always been a politician simply doesn't understand the income curve of the private sector. Guys, I'm afraid we're out of time, but this has been such an interesting conversation, really bracing, as Martin might have said, if he was still here. And I've really enjoyed it. And thank you so much to my panellists, Martin, who has already left, uh, Merrin Somerset-Webb, Luke Johnson and Emily Carver. And we're going to be putting this out as a CapEx podcast later in the week as well. So if you missed it or if you'd like to encourage friends to listen, please do. And thank you very much for joining us. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, welcome to the Next Wave podcast. Consider us your chief AI officer in your business. 
My name is Matt Wolf. I have the number one YouTube channel in the AI space. I also run futuretools.com and I'm joined by my co-host, Nathan Lands, founder of lore.com. We want to bring you the latest AI news and trends, show you how you can use AI in your business and personal life and help make it super easy for you to understand and execute. We're going to equip you with the knowledge to thrive in this upcoming wave of change.